This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter, and some public reaction not good with people saying as Luxon was walking through an airport, get on with it, it's boring, come on, where's our new government? Yes, the coalition of chaos, as some called it. Nats and Acton, Wellington for talks with, with, uh, uh, where's Winnie? Oh, he's back in Auckland. Yes, the puppet master was an O-show. So, back on the plane, they scurried Luxon and Seymour, scurrying back to Lord Oz, and rumours, of course, as well, of an unhappy offer by Luxon. And then finally, finally, after a couple of days of meeting, with, yes, photos of the three of them appearing on social media. Who took that photo? Because I noticed on the table there was a little glass mark where the glass had been. Who was, who was that? I don't know, but I mean, obviously all three of them put it up on different social media, although Winston Peters, I think, was the first. He he <laughs> beat the other two. So, But, uh, yeah, it, well, it has been quite remarkable this week, um, this down in Wellington. And funnily enough, on the Tuesday when they were both down in Wellington, every other New Zealand first MP was also in Wellington in yes. Parliament, but not Winston Peters. No. I, but I see that um, Christopher Luxon has denied that there was oh. any sort of, you know, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it has to be that, as I was told, um, Luxon had misunderstood Winston Peters and perhaps he was just a bit of a reminder about how he should understand him. What do you mean by misunderstood? Well, that, that's harder to, t- harder to say. But misunderstood that, or, or underestimated? Well, maybe a bit of both. I mean, Christopher Luxon seemed to think, you know, when you've heard all the public comments he's made about this process, it was going to be much more professional and different to previous negotiations. And he knew how to negotiate because he'd done it as a chief Business executive. deals. But business deals are quite different to political deals. And I, and I think probably, yeah, he's misunderstood that. Uh, I think probably being a bit naive. I don't know whether he's been getting the, um, the level of advice he should have been getting perhaps from some of his more senior colleagues who have been around politics for a while and would have seen this play out because um, it's all pretty, um, you know, predictable. Um, so, yeah, he's probably learning a few lessons. Well, if it's predictable, why didn't he see it coming? Well, again, you know, it takes a while for people to learn the art of politics and, you know, Christopher Luxon is learning on the job. Um, are there any surprises here in terms that Winston, at the end of the day, is trying to teach him a lesson and successfully teaching a lesson, isn't he? Yeah, well, I, you know, I, mean, I don't know about teaching a lesson, but I, I think New Zealand... Well, when he didn't show up and made them yeah. scurry, is that well, not a lesson? I, I think New Zealand first, and Winston Peters wants to be very clear about, you know, where they stand and where the lines might be drawn. So if, so if you look at the negotiations, for instance, I mean, and, you know, that's been reported, of, and obviously when you look at the... The policy positions. One of the areas that New Zealand first might have difficulties with is this idea of allowing very rich overseas people to come back in and buy residential property, even though national intends yeah. taxing them on it. You know, because one of the things for New Zealand first as a party is that you know it's only just above the five percent threshold. If it if it if it allows that to happen and that that annoys some of its supporters who then don't vote for it next time round, that means it can fall under five percent. So for a party like I didn't New Zealand, think about that. So for a party like New Zealand First, 
sort of sticking to some of those principles isn't just important from the perspective of what it thinks about policies, but actually for its Staying longer in term. Yeah, and in, in the last t- two times that it's been involved in government, each election at the end of that, it's been kicked out of Parliament altogether. So I guess looking ahead to the next election, it wasn't doesn't want to be in that position again. I did not think about that. Well done, you. Well, and I don't know whether maybe Christopher Luxon, and he needs to think not just what's in national's interest, but in a way of working out, well, what what about those minor parties, coalition partners, including ACT, because ACT too will have some issues around, hold it, if we give away ground there, are we going to lose a lot of support? You know, so those are the sorts of things that will be at play when they're, when they're negotiating yeah, but the compromises that need to be made to get a deal. Just as a side, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but as an aside, if there wasn't another election now, they'd be all compromised. Hard, yeah, it's hard to tell. No one, I mean, no, the public, I know, the public I know. would be absolutely sick of... So, I know. But I think, in terms of being all compromised, I think actually the greater onus is on Christopher Luxon. He's the leader of the major party. He's the leader of the party that will yes, lead the but government. but he's also the leader of the party that's going to have to give up most because, as usual, the two tails are wagging the dog. Well, not necessarily give up um, most. I mean, they can probably still get most of National's agenda in with some compromises. And if you go back to the foreign buyers tax, I mean, that was criticised from all sides when it was announced that A, it just wasn't going to work properly anyway. So it may it may give them a an out to actually get rid of it. Yeah, but it also gives them a fiscal hole. Well, not really when you look when you look when at... When they said the word, yeah. When, when people, economists said, well, it wasn't going to raise money the money, anyway. so yeah. maybe not so much yeah. a fiscal hole. No Luxon in San Fran either. Didn't get that little flight So yeah. uh, for APEC. Um, a, good, a great chance of a meeting gone, really. And, and who do we send? Well, we didn't send anyone because he was over there anyway. Damon O'Connor. Now, that makes sense because he was there. But also now, of course, you know, he lost his seat, so probably he doesn't have a lot else to do. Is it too early for that? Well, you know, he was there because he's still trade minister, so he went over for the ministerial meetings that precede yeah. the leader, leaders' meetings. I mean, Luxon had made the comment that he'd love to be there, but he didn't, he didn't say he'd necessarily get there. I mean, it probably would have been a good opportunity for a new New Zealand Prime Minister to meet the likes of Joe Biden, even if it's just over a quick coffee and, you know, you wouldn't necessarily... Well, it's already expect- the likes of... It's the American president. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, I mean, often, you know, they get those just those chance meetings rather than the formal meeting within... Yeah. But, but you know, I mean, he'll be able to catch up on all of that once he finally does... Take oh. office, there'll be so what, Damien be, will come back and be Chris will ring and say, Hey, Dame, come, Damien, come over for a bit of a chat. Well, I would imagine he <clears> would, <throat> he would want to get a, a briefing from Damien O'Connor about how the meeting went, you know, what was what were the views on various issues. Um, because as he's pointed out, there isn't a lot of difference between Labour and National on sort of trade and, and foreign policy, yeah, but I'm sure they're talking about a lot more than that. APEC. Well, I'm just saying there's a lot happening in the world at the moment. Well, there's a lot happening in the world. And, and, and actually, to be honest, though, some of the really important conversations, for instance, there'll be a meeting, as we understand it, between um, President Biden and President Xi he, from China. That's right. And that won't involve New Zealand at all. So there no. are all these other bilateral meetings that New Zealand might be involved in, which will be very important, um, aside from anything that happens in APEC. I mean, the big thing for New Zealand at APEC is to continue to push that line yep. around trade, trade, trade. Yeah, um, mind you. As we've said before, Damien O'Connor 
um, is a good, well is still is uh, a good trade minister. Yeah, well, I mean, he under his watch negotiated yeah. a number of uh, free right. trade deals, UK, EU. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you can have to say he had a very successful tenure, yeah, yeah, which is about to end someday. Tomorrow, next yeah. day, the day What's after, time? or whenever. Yeah, yeah. Right, well, the <laughs> final recount results from the election have come through, confirming the seat results for uh, Tamaki Makoto and Mount Albert. Helen White retaining the Mount Albert seat over Nationals' Melissa Lee, with the margin decreasing by two votes to just 18. Wouldn't that annoy you? Taku uh, Tai uh, Tash Kemp retaining the Tamaki Makoto seat, increasing from a four-vote margin in the final result, and now a 42-vote margin. And the preliminary results from election day suggested Labour's Penny Henare could have retained the seat, but no. With Henare responding in a video on social media saying he was at peace with the result. How could he possibly, in fact, how could Labour be at peace well, well, with that result? He, he said he was um, disappointed. I thought he would have said it in pieces. But, but, but at peace. Um, you know, like it's a bit like after the Rugby World Cup final. I'm, you know, I'm, no, I'm, I'm at peace with I'm that. A, I'm at peace with that. And so, you well, know, it, well, it was a good game. Yeah, well, I know, but we lost. So, but at some point, you have to come at peace with losing, don't you? Otherwise, it burned you up inside. <laughs> well, actually, let's bring that up. Because uh, last time we were here, we, we mentioned uh, Chris Hipkins putting tax back on the table. Right. Uh, well, adding to that this week was a headline. Uh, it said, Inside Labour, the tax deal to seal Chris Hipkins, another term as leader, uh, with the dissenters apparently uh, wanted action on tax, saying difficult to survive next three years in opposition without it. So already, if you if that's correct, there's a power play going on. Well, look, there's always been debate about tax, but I mean, I don't, I don't think, frankly, that Chris Hipkins had any particular concern about putting it back on the table because everything. I mean, most times well, he had after, a concern about taking uh, it off the table after another, yeah, but after an election loss, right, you put everything back on the table. But, but one of the things will be will be interesting to see the the review of their campaign because will we see what, it? Well, we will probably we may not, but I mean, Labor. But I mean, one of the clear things it doesn't get much mentioned a lot of the time. But you go back. If they, if they want to find out what went wrong for them, one big thing that went wrong for them during the year was four ministers disappearing within the space of a couple of months. Yep. Three of them under a cloud. Yep. One of them walking out with not a word. Now, yep. that painted the picture of a government completely falling apart. Yep. And if you think back, before the Stuart Nash um, difficulties started, with Stuart Nash being the first minister yes. to get into difficulties, Labor was ahead of National in the polls, and there was a pretty, you know, there was a good chance on the numbers then that you'd have a centre-left government again. That polling just tracks down and down and down as those ministerial mishaps keep on rolling over and over and over. Um, so, you know, I think there'll be a lot of debate, um, and, they'll, and they'll bring up, well, whether they had the right policy or not, fine, but I think there'll be some other key areas that people might look at and say, gee, but for that, we might have had a better chance. Yeah, just looks a bit of a power play. Anyway, so five weeks to Christmas, Brent. I hope you've been a good boy this year. Now, we know what Luxon wants for Christmas, but how do you form a government, get everyone sworn in, and have a mini-budget in that amount of time? Is it possible, or does it bring to the question that rush legislation is bad legislation? Look, it, it, it is going to be a real um, issue for National. And, and if Christopher Luxon really tries to rush it in the way he's kind of suggested, you know, the, the potential for for cock-up is, is much, much greater. Because if you think even, you know, if in the next day or two we get a governor, if in a position where maybe ministers could be sworn in early next week, maybe you could get Parliament opened 
that week, but then it's that's it basically. Yep. Then there has to be about 19 hours of debate on on the response to the speech from the throne, which is the opportunity for all the new MPs, and there's plenty of them, to yep. give their valedictory speeches. That comes before the government can start any business of its own. But before the government can start business <laughs> of its own in Parliament, Cabinet has to meet and give pot direction to officials about, oh, we want legislation on this. Drafting instructions have to be given to Parliamentary Council to actually draft yeah. the legislation. So, you know, you can't see a lot of that being done before Christmas, no. frankly. I mean, better, I think, probably that they get in, open Parliament, do that stuff, and then give those instructions. But, you know, have to leave that through the Christmas as, break. As, as a question, January. how early could you open Parliament? How early? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if, 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 if they did a deal at, you know, as we t- speak, and they could op- Parliament could open No, 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 week. I don't mean, yeah, I mean in the new year, oh, the uh, new like year. after Christmas break. Oh, well, well, I mean, effectively, there's there's nothing in the rules to say you can't open it as early as you like, but, I mean, Christopher Luxon's talked about the middle of January. Yeah. So, you know, normally... Just checking. Normally it's been late January, early February. La- yep. This year it, they waited till after Waitangi Day, which was yeah, quite well, late. Well, yeah, not but, this time. Yeah. All right, now I have to add, it was my mother's 100th birthday. Yes, you heard that right, during the week. And yes, she got a card from the Governor-General and the King and the Queen and the Prime Minister. And everyone at the function yelled out, Who signed it? And the answer, The current and still Prime Minister of New Zealand... Chris Hipkins. <laughs> and that is Papa Behind Banner asking who will be signing the card next week. Who knows? And after all this time, Brent, who really cares? Anyway, but we do care about you and we appreciate you taking the time to watch or listen. We'll see you soon. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. If New Zealand attempts at brokering some sort of peace deal in the Middle East had been effective, the ongoing bloodshed in Gaza and Israel might have been avoided. Talk about those efforts, let's bring in NBR's political editor Brent Edwards. So Brent, what did New Zealand do during that time? Yeah, well, we're talking about in 2015 and 2016 when New Zealand was on the Security Council and one of the priorities it made is in terms of its two years as a a non-permanent member of the council was to try and push initiatives around the Middle East, particularly around the um, question of Israel and Palestine. Um, So it it did seek to push the Security Council to be more active in terms of getting the parties together to start talking about the the two-state solution, which has been kind of recognised by the UN since 1947 as the as the way for a, a durable, peaceful solution to that that conflict is you know that you have two states, Palestine and Israel, side by side, coexisting mm. peacefully. Well, didn't it sponsor a UN Security Council resolution on the issue? Yeah, it did. It, it sponsored a UN um, resolution two three three four. Um, and essentially that resolution, um, because at the time, and which has continued since, mm. Israel was allowing settlements on occupied land, but, but largely the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, and that resolution that, that New Zealand sponsored, along with others, basically declared that that was a violation of international law and it called on them to cease those settlements. But it also called on Israel to fulfil its obligations under the Fourth Geneva Convention in terms of how it treated civilian populations in, in occupied territories because um, there had been ongoing um, 
battles, wars, with, you know, with Gaza and and the like. And so the call, you know, the call on Israel was to be proportionate mm. in its uh, military interventions. Um, and so, uh, you know, that that was actually passed by the UN Security Council 14 to zero, with the United States abstaining rather than using its veto to stop it. What was the response then? Well, you know, the response from Israel was, um, you know, not particularly helpful. It it, it opposed the, the resolution and, frankly, it, um, it it took steps against a number of countries it blamed for it, and, and including New Zealand. And so, for instance, it withdrew its ambassador and downgraded its diplomatic relationships with New Zealand. Um, and that was only... Uh, sorted out a year later, 2017. And, and I have to say that the, the Foreign Affairs Minister, Murray McCulley at the time, was mm. one who drove this. Um, but after he um, left that job in, in May um, 2017, and this was with then Bill English as Prime Minister, who had succeeded John Key at the end of 2016, um, diplomatic relations were restored after that. But it also included Bill English writing a letter of kind of almost apology to the Israelis for our involvement in sponsoring that resolution. Well, how concerned was McCulley about the ongoing conflict? Look, look, he made the point that, you know, if if positive steps weren't made on the, the two-state sort of solution that, that the international community had... Um, agreed on for many years, then you just get ongoing violence. And and he worried that there was just a self-fulfilling prophecy or view that the, the, the Palestinians and the and the Israelis just couldn't talk to one another, couldn't sort out their differences. So you just then have this ongoing level of violence. And at that point there was level there was a level of violence in the occupied territories, including in Gaza. But of course, I mean it's just escalated to a new level um, after the attack uh, by Hamas onto Israel in October. And, I mean, so I think, you know, probably a lot of the concerns that uh, Murray McCulley raised then, you know, we're seeing Relevant borne now. out today. And how concerned is the current government or incoming government? Well, I mean, that's going to be a, a big question for the incoming government. I mean, mm. one of the things has with a caretaker government um, has been obviously being careful about what it said, can't mm. say anything without, if you like, the approval of the incoming Prime Minister. And also, again, the government sort of treading that careful line of trying not to offend Israel. Uh, and um, But it, so, you know, it'll be interesting. You're now starting to see governments around the world starting to talk more about a ceasefire, whereas they didn't talk about that because Israel opposes the idea of a ceasefire. So, you know, it's going to be a... It'll be the first foreign policy challenge, certainly, of the new government. And a priority, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because And I think everyone agrees, you know, whenever you read widely, you'll never get peace in the wider Middle East until that Israeli-Palestinian conflict is sorted. Uh, and whether that's possible, you know, looking back at what Murray McCulley has said back in 2015, 2016 on the Security Council, you know, it's it's a very, very difficult um, issue to resolve. Brent Edwards, thank you. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.